Whether you're a crypto newbie, an established investor, or operating a business in Web3, tax season can be an absolute headache. But it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in. The software platform founded in 2018 by brothers Shane and Tim Burnett, crypto fanatics who were fed up with the complexity of doing their taxes. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, CTC focuses on simplifying complex transactions, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as 1,000 other integrations. Sign up at realvision.com forward slash CTC and get an exclusive 30% discount with the code RV30 at checkout. Should you sell the stock rally? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Jim Parson, founder of Kai Volatility. Hey, Jim, it's great to have you back on. Always great to be here. We were joking. He's so busy that he literally is running from appointment to appointment <laughs> and client to client. So we we appreciate it. We're all coming in hot because there's a ton uh, to sort of keep track of. I want to just start out by reminding everybody that the last time you were on, you warned that things around mid-February, in fact, you said around February 14th, things could get a little dangerous. There's a lot going on behind the scenes, as well as, of course, the data, which we know the, the latest inflation reading kind of roiled the market. Um, and it's it, sure enough, it's it's been a volatile, brutal week. Um, we had that inflation number yesterday, which has everyone rethinking the Fed. We had a big sell-off, stocks down, bond yields up. Today, as we close the U.S. session, we've seen U.S. stocks, you know, recover, rebound a bit. Treasury yields are down a touch, but the 10-year is still sitting at 4.26, right? It's been a big move from what we saw end of last year. So how are you thinking about all this market action? Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about for several years, right, uh, that, that inflation, uh, despite the narrative that you will hear, um, is sticky and will continue to be sticky and that there's a structural element to that. Um, and it's not just the core inflation, which has clearly been sticky, right? It's also the things that people assume that are non-correlated to that core, which are things like the price of oil, uh, geopolitical conflict, that, you know, the deglobalization we're seeing, all of these things uh, also uh, affect the headline number. Um, and those trends are solid and not going away. If anything, they're getting worse under the hood. And people are overlooking that under this soft landing uh, kind of narrative. Um, and they're missing a much bigger, more important picture, which is in the short term, we can get declines, much like in the 70s, significant declines in headline numbers. Um, but if you look at what's happening under the surface, that's being, uh, that's being accomplished uh, under cyclical uh, pressures, uh, you know, duress from uh, cyclical kind of monetary policy. And the second that recession comes to play and the things, the malinvestment that exists before, which has a lag to it kind of comes to the head, you know, comes to head, then, then we're going to uh, have to re-stimulate, which we've already started to talk about this year. And, and what that means in the context of a structural inflation is, is very troubling. Uh, last time on the show, I think you asked me about the soft landing and I said, soft landing, stagflation is more like it. So I yeah. think we're starting, that's what we're beginning to see. And uh, again, we're the only ones saying that word right now. 
uh, you know, look forward uh, six months, and, and that's going to be the, the the word de jour. Um, but um, you know, again, that that's what that CPI number tells you. Um, in the context of that, there is real risk and weakness. At the same time, we're seeing that those those sticky CPI numbers. Uh, we're seeing a commercial real estate market that has 65%, 65%, two-thirds of commercial real estate is underwater and in risk of foreclosure currently in the, in the whole country. Yeah, so the, that, the numbers- that's so scary. So is that we had this wobble. It's interesting because before we were sort of focused on inflation, we had this wobble again with the banks. And every time we see that, everyone's like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, the federal ring fence- they're going to pop up like whack-a-mole. We know it's there. The Fed will ring fence it. They'll create some facility and they'll be able to kind of contain it. Uh, and then we kind of forget about commercial real estate. Is that is that just too complacent of a view? Are we missing something with that? So late 70s, really early 80s, we had something called a savings and loan crisis. Oh, yes, we did. A lot of people forgot um, about that. How that long did that huge. take to resolve? Do you, do you have any recollection? I mean, I about twenty years. Yeah, I was going to say years, uh, fifteen, was, twenty years. It this is going to this is not a uh, it's a known thing. It is something that that the regulators are going to continually kind of backstop and try and not make an existential threat. Mm. By definition, banks are you call it a Ponzi scheme, call it whatever you want, but it's a leveraged entity with a tail. They don't have enough assets to their liabilities. It's structured that way. That's not, that's just the way what banks are. Um, and so anytime something like this happens, there's a structural tail. And the only way to stop a run on a bank is to backstop it, for the government to backstop it, uh, for a bigger entity to come in and say, we'll make sure all these things are good. Um, so this will continue to be a recurring issue. The, the government will continue to backstop this issue but it's not going away in a year or two, or it's not a temporary crisis. This is a rolling crisis that we will continue to deal with. And again, not a coincidence that things rhyme with the 1970s, right? Uh, at the back end of, you know, when, when you take, keep rates artificially low and then have to raise them, malinvestment eventually comes to a head and things become less affordable. The investments that people made, we've seen this before, this is not a new story, eventually go underwater. And given the amount of leverage in the system, it's you know it's not something that you can just make go away. You have to nationalize it, you have to somehow digest it as an, you know and move on. And it's so big, that's not easy to do. So, so that's is that so is that is, is that in your mind a drag on growth? Is is that is that where you know because you're talking about stagflation, right? So does that create this that's kind what, of yeah? That's one of the issues. It, it's more of like a canary in the coal mine, right? It is one of the uh, the things it's very important, um, but it, it but it speaks to the amount of malinvestment and that with time the, the eventual risks of having to reset those those marks and, and what that means to liquidity. You know, in in financial markets, people broadly don't understand the the momentum effect that exists. Uh, the you know, we've talked about this quite a bit, and in, in the context of the end of last year, we talked about how um, you know when the market's up twenty five percent. That's 25% of new money. And if the assets of the world are $400 trillion, that's $100 trillion more of money. People don't think about it that way because people don't think about leverage, but the whole system is built on leverage. Money, when we create money, when the Federal Reserve creates money, they create leverage. 
That's how they do it. That leverage is money. They're the same thing. And the whole system is built on leverage. So, you know, again, most people think about, well, I own, you know, this cup and this cup increases in value. I own just more, but that's not how it works. How, how it works is you own 25% of, of a cup and much like real estate, right? And if it doubles, right? If the value of that, the property doubles, it goes from a million to 2 million and you had 250 down, you make a 400% return. But now you have a million and a quarter in equity and the leverage has to be reset. There's new dry powder to put to work. And that collateral reinvestment is, is the momentum effect that exists in markets. But just like it works on the way up and creates more and more money and more and more growth and more and more reinvestment, it works on the way down. And that liquidity, that leverage kind of factor is, is a, what will eventually come in and kind of force leverage up leverage down. And we always see this at the end. So it sounds like you're pretty bearish about the coming months, or is that? I want to be clear. It, it, I, I started my, in the business in 1998, right? And I started investing in 1995. So my early experiences um, were a market that, uh, that from 95 to 2000 that uh, exploded higher, um, you know, way bigger than anything we've seen in any recent history, and then lost 92% of its value. The NASDAQ lost over 90% of its value. And um, so if, if you're asking me to tell you what's going to happen in the next month or two, I can look at flows and give you some context and probability. But uh, what you have to understand is that this market and the path that it takes on its way down um, has way less to do with was what's actually happening and valuations and realities in the short term and has more to do with supply and demand and balance and, uh, and flows. And so uh, we can have that conversation, which is a separate one. But if we're talking right. in the context of macro and the bigger picture, yeah, this isn't going to end well. I am uh, broadly bearish years out, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, given, given the macro realities of, of the world we are living in, um, but that does not mean that in the next couple of months uh, that this market has to crush or decline in value. Those two things are, you know, weighing, we're talking weighing machine versus voting machine. The two things um, eventually will will reconnect, but we could diverge for for years at a time. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Whether you're a crypto newbie, an established investor, or operating a business in Web3, tax season can be an absolute headache, but it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in. The software platform founded in 2018 by brothers Shane and Tim Burnett, crypto fanatics who were fed up with the complexity of doing their taxes. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, Crypto Tax Calculator focuses on simplifying complex transactions, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as 1,000 other integrations. It's as simple as connecting your wallet, pulling in all your transactions, and following the automated suggestions to quickly and accurately calculate your tax obligations. Finally, 2024 is a year when crypto investors can do their taxes with speed and confidence. Make taxes this year easy and affordable with Crypto Tax Calculator. Sign up at realvision.com forward slash CTC and get a 30% discount with the code RV30 at checkout. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Which is, which I think is, it's hard for people to hold both of those things. You know, we tend to sort of grab onto that longer term macro narrative. And then it's hard because you'll see the market moving and it doesn't fit into, um, into what you're, you know, what, what you're expecting from that. Uh, and a lot of people in the chat already talking about commercial real estate, because it was really something pe- people were so worried about. And then, and then sort of, I don't want to say suddenly we weren't, but it was the everyone collectively extending and pretending and just sort of trying to, to manage it. It's, it's, it's a problem, but it's kind of in a slow moving, right? Right. Slow motion crash. So, so how, how are you thinking about things shorter term? Because you always watch these structural flows that you've been so great about, um, shining a light on for us, as opposed to just that, you know, we know that there's data, we know that earnings are coming in, you know, all those things that we're looking at in the headlines, but I know there's options expiration, which you watch closely. So what are you seeing in the short term that has your attention? So we've talked about this before, but I can't emphasize it enough. These quarterly OPEXs, um, which we are about to, you know, impart on, um, you know, when I say the OPEXs, it's not the actual March OPEX itself. It's the cycle, right? It's the that starts post-Feb OPEX into March OPEX um, are very important. Um, the options themselves, uh, there's more open interest uh, tied to both structured products and uh, trading um, uh, to the, tied to those uh, those quarters. And because of that, that leads to a change during these periods of distribution. So um, uh, what happens during these cycles is you have a very fat left tail with more right distribution. And as you move through that cycle, the tail drops off and the right distribution, um, you know, the, the, the flows start really accelerating. Um, why is that? Because again, all this, uh, the, the street, uh, the you know, dealers, the banks, the market makers are short puts, you know, long calls, short stock in, um, you know, in those expirations. And, and, uh, that's just structural, right? The world is long and the world has to hedge. So the options markets have the opposite. And uh, as a function of that, as time passes, they have to buy back that stock or as the probabilities change of that uh, decline happening, they have to buy that stock. So it's kind of a, uh, again, it's a, it's a constantly moving, it's a function of time and risk, and those flows enter accordingly. Um, but at the same time, if a decline happens, then they have to sell into it. Those are the gamma effects, which are the counter uh, effects here. And those create, we've seen this many times, uh, from mid-February, Again, this is one of those things where people call it seasonality and it's an almanacs and people, you know, look at the stars and say, you know, but the reality is there's reasons for these things. And, and, and so if you look at that, the, those tendencies, the tendencies are to have um, some big tail events, think COVID, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, day after Feb OPEX to the day after March OPEX, literally, you know, the exact days of the cycle, um, we had a 30% decline. And then uh, as soon as it was done, a, a V bottom and it was over. 
Um, not a coincidence. Uh, mm. We knew about COVID in late December, early January, right? We, we, we've talked about this. So those, those periods can be very dangerous, big fat left tail, but it doesn't mean, again, to be clear, mm. it doesn't mean that the market needs to decline here. If anything, if we get through this short period at the beginning of that cycle and we don't get the wobble or the risk that we need, then the vol kind of compresses, the risk of downside decelerates and then the flows start coming back. It can be very positive and we can get an extension in this period. But it is a period after, particularly after a big run, particularly when there's structural fundamental reasons under the hood to be bearish, as we've seen from CPI, and we've seen with the commercial real estate issues we've seen, that people are kind of just whistling by the graveyard on that, um, that there's risk here. And, and you need to price that probability and the tail and the leverage that exists in, the, in those products during this period. Yeah, so, the, so it's vulnerable. Do you see presently anything on your radar that would be that kind of risk that hits the market in this dangerous time? Is there anything you worry about? Well, I, I'm, to be clear, I'm, I'm worried about the structured products and the, and, and the actual volatility exposure that exists, the short vol that exists on the tail in, in that quarterly expiration, given how far we've run in the potential energy. So uh, you know, these blow-off tops, which are essentially these big, fast moves that go further than anybody could possibly imagine, um, as you know, vol starts to become unpinned. So fixed strike vol starts to increase. We've talked about this, and 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 we're seeing right. It's harder to be short vol in this environment when you're getting a hundred point decline and then a seventy five point rally. And meanwhile, the longer end of the curve vol keeps kind of hanging in. It just doesn't pay to be short vol. So what do people do? People start selling less and buying more vol, and it, you start to get a squeeze up in vol, and then the thing becomes a bit unpinned. Right. And not to mention, as you rally, you're sliding to a lower vol anyway, and it becomes more appealing relative. So there's this whole process that we're watching and that's unfolding kind of as we've talked about for months now that you would want to see transpire to unpin some of this vol. And we're starting to see that. So that's a reason for concern. Right. Uh, it makes the probabilities higher that something can transpire because there's less vol hitting in the short term and there's more tail risk. So. We're reading the tea leaves. And when I say the tea leaves, it's not just qualitatively like putting our fingers in the air and saying, okay, macro is bad or whatever. It, it really is saying, measuring, okay, how much supply demand potential risk is there? How much leverage is there in this uh, potential voting machine that, that, can, that can cause problems? Where do we need to get to for that to start to transpire? And we're measuring that and time passing as a function of that is kind of how you, you play this. Game. Yeah. It's so interesting um, to, you know, to, again, to think about it that way. We talk all the time. I want to play, you were just talking about the long end, sort of not moving. I, wanted to, I want to play, Harry Melandri uh, had a chance to sit down with Bob Elliott today. I know you know Bob, you, you know each other well, you speak often as well. And they talked about the outlook for the bond market and some of the things that Bob's watching when it comes to treasuries. Let's have a listen to that and then we'll talk on the other side. Well, I think in a lot of ways, what we see on the short end is um, I, I sort of describe it as the easy money has been made. You know, in these trades, you've got you've got to think you got to think carefully about sort of where do you have the highest confidence, and then when does that confidence start to erode? And so, um, you know, and 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 it's not it's not a linear thing. So, you know, we had I. I in December, as much as intraday, seven cuts for 24 priced in, and now we're down to, you know, three and change. 
cuts priced in for 24. And that really is uh, that that big that big shift is reflective of the fact that, um, you know, it was pretty extreme in terms of the cuts relative to the strength of the economy. You know, at three and change cuts, you know, does that look like on the short end, uh, you know, does that look like about right? You know, it's probably in the ballpark of of right on the margin. I think there'll probably be less cuts than that, but um, but it's a lot less interesting a trade. The thing that really, to me, is an interesting focus is how little of the move in the long end has been around the expansion of the term premium. So you've had actually, you know, through the course of all of this short-term cut, all these short-term cuts getting priced out, essentially the yield curve in aggregate has shifted up and you really haven't had much change in the term structure of interest rates. And that's the place where, um, you know, pricing, the pricing of sort of stronger for longer here seems a little um, underdone. And that full interview, who's better than Harry and Bob? That full interview is available on our platform. If you're not a member, head over to our website and join us. We have an, um, I just found out an amazing Valentine's Day. It's Valentine's Day. Amazing Valentine's Day promotion, a price massacre, they're calling it. Uh, uh, For the Plus membership, you'll get interviews like the one you just watched, as well as the Real Investing Course and the Crypto Academy. So there's a lot in there. So go check that out. Um, And hilariously, um, Jim, when we while we were talking, uh, someone's running a poll. I think it's Paul on who spent what on Valentine's Day, which I love. So <laughs> fill us in on that, the results of that. We're gonna find out if you're generous, if you're all a little stingy. Um, but uh, to get back to bonds, um, it was an interesting point from Bob. What, what are you thinking about? Especially, I think he's talking about that. He feeling like that long end may be mispriced. What, what's your reaction? Yeah. So Bob and I do a Twitter Spaces uh, almost once a month uh, before the Fed meetings in particular. Um, and you know, for over, almost a year, we've kind of agreed, uh, we come out about things at a quite, quite a different, from a different perspective, but we have really agreed on this fact and that the more the Fed eventually pivots, um, what will likely happen down the road to the yield curve, and we've been correct on this, is, uh, which is, by the way, counterintuitive to most bond traders, because this is not what's happened for the last 40 years, is that the front end of the curve will likely come down, obviously, because the Fed is lowering rates. But unlike other periods where the whole curve kind of shifts down, our view has been that actually, given that we're in a very structurally inflationary period, that what that'll tell the long end of the curve is that, you know, uh, Powell's actually not Volcker, that he's that he's more Arthur Burns. And that and that ultimately the, the risk there increases of higher long-term. Right, that this this lack of uh, willingness to kind of combat inflation, instead to favor growth over inflation, not an unwillingness to kind of create a, a meaningful recession. Right, um, what that means to the yield curve is more inflation down the road, and so you're likely to get a, a steepener um, as, ironically, uh, the, the Fed is lowering rates, and that's exactly what we're beginning to see here. And I think well, that's, that's a real a- risk. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. And and then so, and of course, the other side of the equation is fiscal. And again, we don't see any fiscal constraint, any balanced budget efforts. There's not to say that we're going to get a ton more spending or not, but there's lots of indications that you, very unlikely we see cuts or frugality in Washington. 
no, the, the, the appetite on both sides of the aisle for spending is uh, higher than it's ever been. And that's the populist, uh, you know, uh, rhetoric and the populist kind of uh, reaction, you know, uh, impulse that we've been talking about for, for years now. Um, it's only getting stronger and uh, we're likely to, we are likely to see more, but there's already so much in the tank to be clear. It's not like we spent it. We, we passed it, but we are spending it as we go and there will be more. Uh, you can count on that. That's what people want. And politicians give people what they want. Right. And there was a time in Washington where maybe, I mean, I don't know if any of you can remember, but there was that famous story. And I don't know if it's lore or if it's accurate. Someone can go down that rabbit hole where Bob Rubin, when he was the treasury secretary, convinced Bill Clinton to pay attention to the bond market and get a handle on a balanced budget and that the bond market would reward them with lower rates because they were being serious about inflation. But that whole idea that you can do anything on a bipartisan uh, you know, platform is com completely impossible, at least for the moment. We shall see. It's a crazy world and we do have an election, but it's it's hard to see that right now. Um, it's just an, an interesting point on that, Jim, and this comes up that people say, um, oh, well, that the treasury can't afford to let, let rates go up. So, you know, Yellen will push them because they've got to roll over this debt, which is true, but that doesn't mean that bonds won't go up anyway, unless you buy into the, I guess this is where you and Bob either don't agree or you may not think this will actually happen, sort of some form of yield curve control, right? Like they force someone, the banks to buy more treasury, something like that happens. That's the only way that steepener wouldn't run out of control, right? So I have a different view than pretty much everyone on this. Um, and uh, that is that, and it sounds Pollyannish. This is not a, a moral, you know, belief. This is just the reality is to the extent there's no alternative to US dollar, which, you know, we can debate all day long, but, you know, it's, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know where you're putting your money that you can believe that you're going to get it back with the confidence that you can in the United States. You're, you have a million different reasons. Um, as long as that's the case, um, I don't believe that, you know, uh, higher interest rates and not being able to balance the budget matters. Uh, at the end of the day, much like Japan, which was backed by the U.S., that allowed it to, you know, essentially monetize all its debt. Just it internalized. We talk about GDP ratios uh, to debt in China. I mean, in Japan, but they're relevant because the Japanese central bank owns all that debt. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. It's one hand shaking with the other hand. So. If we're paying, uh, you know, absurd, you know, as a percentage of the budget, it may look high, but if the money's just going to the Fed and then the Fed is just passing the money back and, you know, to the U.S. government, yeah. it doesn't matter. We're just monetizing our debt. Yeah. And uh, I believe that if anything is inevitable, it's that we will continue to increase our debt despite the the, the fear of of this, and that eventually that'll mean that the Fed has to to monetize the debt. We'll have a debt jubilee in some form or another. That's what happened in 1971. People don't call us being taken off of gold, right, as a debt jubilee. But that's what it was, right? The move to fiat was a debt jubilee. And uh, it was inevitable in some form or another. Maybe not that way. but And to be clear, it was the best thing the US ever could have done for itself, right? It allows us to tax the rest of the world. And it allows us to monetize the ex, you know, exorbitant privilege of the U.S. dollar. It is the ultimate power move. 
right? And all that money, all that matters for the value of currency now is power. It's a vehicle of power. Um, it always has been, but now it's, you know, without constraint, essentially. And yeah. uh, you better believe if we have a debt jubilee, the first reaction by everybody out there would be what happened during the removal of the gold standard, which would be to sell the dollar. But pretty quickly, what would happen is the dollar would strengthen. And that's what happened. You know, it didn't take long after the, the removal off the gold standard for the dollar to actually strengthen in the face of that. And uh, it was essentially a free lunch. And that's what power does. If you're the guy that's 20 times bigger than anybody else in the room and has all the weapons and all the power is more intelligent, guess what? You can tax everybody. That it doesn't your how much money you borrow from everybody in the room doesn't really matter. And again, it's not fair. It sounds awful. Like I'm not saying that's okay or making mm -hmm. some moral equivalency. Please don't come at me, right? Like yeah, yeah. He's not like supporting American not exceptionalism. Supporting this, he's just right? saying that this that's, is history. That's real politique, shows. right? Like that's the way the world works. And um, to ignore that, I think, is to create some equivalency that doesn't exist in the world. You know, life is not fair. The world is not fair. Yeah. Um, we, you, you can know, the U.S. government is not you or me, or it's not Botswana or, you know, Zimbabwe. It's not the same thing. And uh, I think people try and draw some equivalency. That's just how people's minds work. Like the U.S. government is like a, a human being's budget. Like it's not, yeah. that's not how it works. So in my opinion, again, most people don't agree with this. I want to be clear, but I don't think it matters. And honestly, I think um, the more the U.S. government, the U.S. government should, you know, resolve its own issues to the extent it can. And if you can print unlimited money and monetize the value of currency because it doesn't go down, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Right? And you can so. see why this is feeding into conversations about a realignment or, you know, different spheres of influence. And because there are a lot of people that would like to get change that situation, Absolutely. whether that happens or not. But this is some of the geopolitical tensions. And if any of you have seen uh, D. Smith talk about the dangerous world that's coming, this is part of, you know, this plugs in exactly to that. By the way, also circles back to the fact we're not likely to see any budget constraints. Defense spending will go up. All this will go up right. to try to maintain that, you know, that power. So, um right. These are big thoughts, people. This is why sometimes it's a long week, but they're, it's really important to, to sort of think this through. I want to get a couple questions in. Um, and one of them, I think, is it, it, it's throughout uh, the questions because people are trying to uh, sort of figure this out in an inflationary environment. I love Andrew's. Gem the goat <laughs> on the day. <laughs> Thank you for that. On the day that oil goes up, oil stocks tank. Gold not doing well either. How does a regular Joe play this incoming in reinflation? A lot of people are trying to figure out why aren't commodities acting the way you think, or specifically gold as well, if you're in a reinflationary environment. It doesn't seem to be sort of working the way one would think. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, it, I think, again, people are playing in two dimensions. Can't play. Uh, is it reinflationary or deflationary? Right. That's that's the way the game has been essentially for forty years. Um, that's not the game anymore. Right. We can be in a cyclically deflationary period. Right. Uh, with with slowing growth, with the things that we're seeing behind the hood. Right. With sticky inflation. 
So just because CPI is strong doesn't mean we're going into deflation, not cyclical deflation. And so this equivalency between the business cycle and inflation that people just assume are one-to-one misses the structural inflationary pressures, which have nothing to do with GDP growth, which have everything to do with the distribution of wealth, the deglobalization, and all the things that are happening under the hood of that growth. Yeah, I love the idea of not thinking about things two-dimensionally. I think that's what a lot of us have. I mean, that's sort of what we what we were all told. And so much of the dialogue today still is earnings come up, stocks go up, earning, you know, that th- it is in this very sort of news headline-y um, way of thinking about that. And it's so much more complex than that. I'm going to squeeze one more in. Uh, and it is <laughs> J&J. If I wanted to take it, I don't know if we can do this. I'm going to try. If we wanted to take advantage of a volatility spike, what are some good ways of getting long vol exposure that doesn't make my head hurt too much? <laughs> long, long dated calls and short stock delta neutral. There you go. JJ, you let us know. Remember, I say calls out of the money, upside calls. Vol is too cheap when you get out two, three, four months given the risks. Um, and importantly, there's enough short interest and short calls out there that the higher we go, the more need people get forced to buy that stuff back as well. So we're starting to see market up ball up fairly consistently. If you can not get your face handed, you know, you know, get hurt into a rally on ball, if anything, market the ball can go up and then into a decline, you move away from those calls into a decline and you're just becoming that short stock. You own the tail with relatively low cost. You can fund that with other types of trades. Um, you know, again, short, short dated books and other things that can fund it. Uh, you know, we can get into all those things, but the cheapest thing on the distribution, if you want to be long ball is long dated calls. Amazing. Jane J, I hope that helped. Um, if you still have questions, put them in the comments under the video, not the live chat. And we'll follow up in one of our Uh, sessions on plus about options. So Jim, always fantastic stuff. Thank you so much. So great to catch up with you. Pleasure. Always love being here. Happy expiration week. Happy Valentine's day. Exactly. Oh, what was the, someone put in the chat, what the result was, are you all spending blown it out? Supposedly it's going to be the the biggest Valentine's day spend um, in, in like maybe ever or three years. So uh, that gives you, I I guess we're all YOLO still. Um, But anyway, everybody enjoy and and report back on how it was. Jim, thanks so much. Um, just a reminder, I got to remind everybody again that we have the Valentine's Day special going on uh, for Plus membership and you get the Real Investing course and the Crypto Academy, which by the way, has a lot on options, the Real Investing course. So more on how to use all this. Uh, go to realvision.com slash RV day and they tell me the team that money issues are one of the leading causes of divorce. So let's try to avoid that. Everybody go, go inform yourself, give that gift to yourself. Um, take care, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow. Good luck out there. We hope you enjoyed this episode at real vision. We arm you with the expert knowledge, time efficient tools, and a powerful network to help you succeed on your financial journey. Get a taste of financial freedom with our free offer at realvision.com forward slash free.